Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Genius Leader, welcome to a guest episode of the show. Before I introduce a guest, let me remind you that today, 31st of January, if you're listening to this episode on the day of the release, is the last day to share the episode on the social media, whatever social media you choose, and get a chance to win a 100 euro gift card. We're celebrating the third birthday of the show, so this is my way of saying thank you to one of you. So don't miss a chance, share whatever episode, learning, outcome you have from the Genius Leadership uh, Podcast, and uh, let's keep spreading the goodness together. So today, my guest is Sira Stockland. She is an author, speaker, a four-time Ironman finisher, but she is also a serial entrepreneur, and we're talking about her entrepreneurship journey. Sira went from running a seven-figure business to losing everything, including her house, because of the issues in the business. And we're talking about that journey. How did she get there, and how she did get, get past that or through that stage of her life? and what she has learned from there, and what is she now sharing with the others so that they don't need to make the same mistakes as her. We're talking about resilience, when and how do you build it. I I really liked a serious touch on that. We're talking about intentional living, what it means, how Syra came to know about this concept and how she's implementing it or living by that philosophy. We're talking about building your story and disrupting the status quo, how Syria is doing it. I also give some examples there and so much more. I, I, I'm looking at my notes and I've noted so much from that episode, but you can read more of my bullet points in the show notes. But without further ado, let me introduce you to Syrah. Let's welcome her to the stage, so to say, to the microphone. Enjoy this conversation because you'll learn a lot about the philosophy, but also about the business financials the foundation of of creating a healthy, profitable business. So enjoy and see you on the other side. Sira, warmest welcome to the Genius Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm fascinated for this conversation. So because I don't know that much about your personal story, but I have a feeling that we'll learn a lot from it and a lot of people will manage to resonate with parts of it and learn from that. So Let's start with that directly. Tell us about this losing everything part that we discussed as the focus, at least to begin with. Yeah. What what is losing everything mean for you? Yes. Yeah, so I'm an entrepreneur, came from an entrepreneurial family, small business family, third generation. And so I've always had a small business. I started my first when I was 13 years old, um, built that, grew it, uh, launched my first retail uh, concept brand in 2006 built that and franchised it. And through a series of events, um, ended up losing the entire company. So after I had built it for about a decade, 
we lost everything. We had a lot of small business loans and a lot of our life tied to the business. And so when we lost the business, we ended up losing our home. I lost my business. We closed everything down. So I really had been on the top of the world with my small business. And then I suddenly found myself on the very bottom. <laughs> no, um, nothing to show for all the work that I'd done, no team, no revenue, and no home. We were ended, we ended up got, getting really blessed with a beautiful home and just some great circumstances surrounding our move. But then I was faced with the, with this choice. I've always been a very optimistic person. I'm always a problem solver. I'm always, you know, today's a new day with no mistakes. Let's go for it. But that's a pretty big blow. And so mm-hmm. I was sitting at home. My husband was at work. The kids were at school. I was sitting at home on the couch and really think like, what was this all for? All the work I put in, all the relationships I built. And I realized at that time I had a choice. I could either move forward, rebuild, learn. So while a lot of what happened to me was not because of what I had done, it was because of choices of other people. I did have to take responsibility for what I could have done different, right? I think it's always good to be introspective. Like, what did I contribute? So I could take that learning and I could do something better and different and try again. Or I could sit at home and complain and (laughs) really grow bitter. And I was 42, 41, 42 at the time. And I just chose not to have bitterness be part of my life. Like our life is so short. I wanted to do what I could do with what I had learned. And so built and launched a new business, um, grew that, sold it in 18 months. And through the building of that, started to meet entrepreneurs around the world. I have clients all over the world that were asking the same small business questions. How do I know where my money is going? How do I read a set of financials? How much inventory should I buy? Cash comes in, cash goes out. Where's it going? These same questions. And I knew the answers because I had built multiple businesses. And so decided to help coach and consult. And through that built the consulting business I have now. Uh, I want to uh, pause on the mo- for a moment on that more time when you're sitting on the sofa and making a decision because I, I'm just about to record a solo episode about uh, choices that we make in life, right? And how sometimes we're just one little choice away from a big shift. Yes. Yes. So first of all, was it natural for you, Sarah, to have these two choices in, the, in front of you? I can pick myself up and start rebuilding or I can be bitter and stay bitter. So how natural was that? option or like what or list of two options and what was your thinking process to actually choose the rebuilding option yeah so i like to tell people that resilience is not built in the moment it's built over time and often before we need to call upon it so mm-hmm. i had always been a learner i had always been someone who was very inquisitive very curious about the results of my business the results of my life previous to this whole circumstance it was probably I don't know, four or five, six years before all of this happened, um, I had a really long commute and I would listen to a family psychologist on the way home from work. And at one point he was talking about intentional living. And I had never heard this before, never heard this concept of living with intention. And I thought, that's really interesting. What is he talking about? And he would talk about this a lot. And so I started getting really curious about how do we be intentional with our thoughts, with our relationships, with our choices? And so I think building that framework before I needed it was key. So Mm -hmm. I like to tell people, you know, when we're in the midst of a crisis, we want other people around us. We want a good network, but we can't build that good network in that moment. We need to be working on it before the crisis happens so that we have Mm -hmm. that to draw upon. And so I really think my mindset, even though it was still very difficult in that hard moment, 
I had already built those mental muscles to know this is what I want. Here's how I have to be intentional. Here's what that looks like. And so I had those muscles to draw on when that moment came. Fascinating. And when, uh, if someone is listening to us right now and they feel like I am in the crisis right now and they feel like I haven't been intentionally working on my resilience, yes. <laughs> what the hell do I do now? <laughs> yes. So do you have any suggestions there, Sarah? Yes. So we, you know, it's not a lost cause. There's always hope, right? So I think mm-hmm. making that choice today, maybe saying, I don't know what to do in this moment. I don't know how to fight against bitterness or anger. I don't know how, but there are people who do. There are tools that can help. And I'm going to choose in this moment to see where I'm weakest and look for help and build that. Um, Because it's always a work in progress, right? I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Um, I'm hoping I'm continuing to build those resilience muscles for the next storm, right? Because that's what life's about. It's about amazing highs and then really hard times. And so whenever we're in a great time, I think, okay, you know, what's around the corner because that's life. And so I think for someone that's saying, I haven't done that in the past, I would say, what tools do you have in your toolbox though? What relationships do you have where you could ask questions? Um, who could you seek counsel for? For um, What kind of resources could you dig into now to start helping um, in whatever situation you're currently in? Definitely, because whatever you do, you, you do you do something, right? So right. looking at that and sometimes just getting this perspective from outside can help a lot, uh, especially when we're stressed and we feel like, oh, I'm not doing anything. And we start beating ourselves up and telling ourselves negative stories. And then talking to someone can be very valuable yes. uh, to gain perspective. Like, hey, this is something that you're strong at. Uh, this is something that comes natural to you or you've built that muscle. So leverage it. And that's what I do quite often with my clients. Just point them out like you know, dig their nose into like, hey, this is something that works for you. Just don't yes. like neglect it because because it's easy. Right. <laughs> because that's some, something very easy to do for high performance. So I want to go into what you're doing right now. But before that, I do want to stay a bit in that period, the, the dark or the low period, because in my circle right now, there are a lot of people who are going through tough times, especially mm-hmm. the founders of the companies. It's very difficult to raise capital. Uh, it's a hard fight for the for the talent to to get it and to to stay them uh, to get them to stay with you, yeah. it's uh, technology moving ahead every second, and you need to somehow stay on top of that game. So it can can feel dark. I want to touch on your relationship with your partner. So because your business decisions or situation and context have has affected your personal life, yes, on a very material way, not only a relational or your mental way. So how did you deal with that as the couple or as a unit? And I just want to emphasize that part of the journey for the genius leaders. Yes, that's so, I'm so glad you asked about that. So we had two teenage children at the time as well. So um, when this all started really have, you know, being turbulent, if you will, I suppose they were 12, 14, somewhere in there. A bit of that time is a blur, right? As any tragic time can be. We think like, what, when was that? But they were early teens. Um, one thing that we chose together as a couple, my husband and I, was that we were going to be honest with our kids. So they had grown up in a small business home. When I started my store, my daughter was one and my son was three. Like They had always been around my small business. They'd been around my franchisees and all my team and they'd been in the back room. And so while it was really hard that we were losing everything, I wanted to be honest with them and talk through what was happening. So 
Here's what's happening. Here's what mom and dad are doing about it. You are completely safe. Like you are taken care of. I remember at one point, you know, when we were getting ready to file for bankruptcy, my son was like, do I get to keep my Legos? You know, cause that's what mm-hmm. a kid thinks, right? Like, but am I going to have to give up my teddy bear? No, absolutely not. You are 100% safe. But yet we wanted to let them know this is really hard for us. And you're going to see mom cry all the time. Like I'll be crying, but that doesn't mean that you are not safe. It means that mom and dad are working through things. I remember going for a walk with my son and saying, okay, we're filing for bankruptcy. That's our story now for the rest of our life. And it's part of your story too. And you can either use that story to help people or you can be ashamed of that story. But regardless, it's your story. And just talking through that, even though they were young. And so now I go back and you know I'll chat. I interviewed both my kids separately on my podcast. Um, recently and asked them. And it's interesting because they have different personalities from their perspectives, but both of them in a different way said they've always felt like we were real and Mm -hmm. they're not afraid of failure because of that. Because they know like if mom and dad could lose all of it and we could still thrive as a family, what are we afraid of? Like we're not afraid of anything. So that I think was really important for my husband and I. Again, we had built a relationship before this. So We weren't coming into a turbulent time in a turbulent relationship. We already had a strong relationship and we decided you can always rebuild. You can always make more money. You can always live somewhere different, but we will not allow this to to ruin our relationship because that cannot be redone. And so we just made that conscious effort. We're very different people. He's very operational. I'm very visionary. It was my company. So there was a lot of guilt and shame. Like, I know you say you love me and that you don't care, but it's because of me that we're... And so I had to verbalize that and I had to listen when he would say, Sierra, but that's not the way I think. And you need to listen to what I'm saying and believe it as truth. But we had to like go back and forth and talk a lot about that. So I think it's about not hiding things. Like you said earlier, let's speak these things out loud. Let's talk through them. And then let's just move forward with the people that love us. How were you working in that relationship before? You said that you it wasn't turbulent on that yes. matter uh, in, in life. So what, what are the practical things that you've been doing with each other? Yeah. So I think it goes back to, you know, that intentional conversation from that family mm-hmm. life psychologist that made really a difference. But even before I had heard those words, when we started dating and we got married, I just wanted a relationship that was so different than what you typically see. You know, you, you hear with children like, oh, when your kids are 13, just be prepared for them to slam doors and hate you. And I always thought, well, why would I prepare for that? Why wouldn't I create a good relationship, right? Even though we were going to have rocky times, why would I tell my child ahead of time, you're going to hate me in 10 years? And the same thing with marriage. So you hear, it's going to be hard. You're going to fall out of love. I thought to myself, why would we not build it the other? I guess I've always just been curious about things like that. And so, you know, starting from the beginning, communicating, my husband's very encouraging of who I am and he never holds me back. Like, He wants me to win. I want him to win. We're very different people and we're okay. We celebrate that and we're okay with it. A lot of open and honest conversations, time together. So one very practical thing is we've always felt like our relationship was more important than the relationship we had with any other friends. So I see a lot of couples where their friend groups are so exclusive of each other that they end up not living a lot of life together. And Jim and I live a lot of life together. So I still have girlfriends and he doesn't come to my girlfriend luncheons and so forth and so on. However, for the majority of the time when we can be together, 
will be together and then have friend groups that can celebrate that alongside of us. And I think that's really important. So life is happening together a lot, if mm. that makes sense. Love it. Uh, thanks for sharing that, uh, Sarah. I, I appreciate it because I, I'm the same with the, the defining relationship. Um, I remember one colleague uh, from my first uh, big corporate job uh, back in Sweden where a colleague who I really respected a lot and I really liked him on a personal level. And he was much, much older than me. I was in my early 20s then. And we, we talked about the relationship. Uh, I was then still dating. Now now it's my husband, but then well, he was a boyfriend. And I said something about it. I was like, yeah, it's just getting better and better. And he just looked at me like, oh, dear. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, let's talk in 30 years. And I was like, dude, why? Why yeah. does it have to be like that? Like, like it's your decision that it becomes yes. there after 30 yes. years. Like, And I, I thought about him in the last couple of months so much because I feel like my relationship with my husband is just getting better and better. And we've been together for 12 years now. And it, it's, it is getting better. Yes. Continuously. And it's because it's our con- conscious choice and it's our yes. work, right? Yes. Preparing for those uh, turbulent moments, right? And nurturing that relationship and taking that action. So I, I just want to emphasize those stories, dear genius leaders. And maybe for you, it's not about the relationship. It could be about something else. It's about how much you need to hustle to earn money or where do you need to live or what kind of career do you need to build? Uh, when do you need to get kids, especially as a woman in our society and so on and so forth. Whatever it is for you that you feel like, I don't feel like following this narrative, just ask yourself a kind of a, a bit of a rebellious why yes. and, and start redefining it. Yes. And just I think that's how I have been. I like to call myself a disruptor in the entrepreneurial space. And until this interview, I've never thought of it outside of the entrepreneurial space, but I would say that I'm a disruptor in everything. Like, why do we have to hold to the status quo? Um, you know, in small business, we hear all of the time, you're not going to make any money until you're five. You can't pay yourself, like all of these things. And I think who, who decided that? Like who made that up? Why can't we have a profitable business from the beginning? Why can't we take a paycheck as entrepreneurs before we pay anyone else and hire other people? So I think in everything, I like to look at, you know, what people say. And I think a lot of those conversations come from fear, right? It's easier. Let me give an example. I'm a triathlete as well. And um, one of my friends, this was several years back, but we decided to do a race together. And as we're getting close to the morning of the race, she kept saying, you know, I haven't trained well. I don't, it's going to be cold, like all of these things. And I thought to myself, you're laying the groundwork so that if you don't do well, you can say, see, I told you, right? And how often in life do we do that? Out of fear, we lay the groundwork of worst case scenario openly to everyone so that if we don't succeed, we can say, yes, and I told you this and you know, I lined it up for you. Instead of saying, I'm going to do the very best I can do and I'm hoping I can win. I'm hoping that I can run my best race. I'm hoping that I can PR. And I just think we do that a lot and I just don't want to be a person that does that. I want to look mm-hmm. for the positive and the best possible outcome and then work towards that instead of setting myself up for failure. I love it. And now I actually want to transition what you said now about the disruptor uh, with the business stories, we can say, for like when you start a business. Actually, I want to use that as a transition to what you do nowadays, right? Helping businesses to actually be profitable to, uh, for business owners to actually take that salary out <laughs> and not wait for the five-year mark and so on. So let's look, dive into that. You uh, operating through the profit first methodology and framework. And maybe let's first introduce that concept to my audience in case they haven't heard about it. What is profit first? 
Yeah. So I received my Profit First certification several years back, and it's just a cash management system. Really, we're telling our money where to go. So instead of letting all of our money land in the bank account and saying, oh my goodness, I have so many sales. Last weekend was phenomenal. I can go spend money. I can hire this person, buy inventory, pay for this, hire social media. We actually plan ahead of time what we're going to do with our money when it arrives. So Profit First has a couple main principles. One being that we take our sales and we subtract. If you're a service-based business, your materials are subcontractors, and then you have your difference, which would be your gross margin or what Profit First calls real revenue. And from that real revenue, that's our real revenue. That's what we really get to divvy up. So it's not the $100,000 that came into the bank that month. It's the $100,000 minus materials or subcontractors or cost of goods if you have inventory. The difference is what we get to pay ourselves with, save for a rainy day, pay our tax, you know, make sure we're saving to pay for taxes um, and operating expenses. So that's kind of the main um, principle of Profit First. They have you set up multiple checking accounts so that we can move our money into different places, kind of an envelope type system. And then we just tell our money where to go. We get very intentional with the cash that's coming in. Love it. And I'm actually using it sometimes better than worse. (laughs) Sometimes worse. (laughs) I do have those different accounts. Sometimes the money is reallocated accordingly, the formulas I'm (laughs) supposed to use. Sometimes it's not happening. (laughs) But you Uh, are on it. Yes, it's it's work in progress uh, for sure. Uh, I want to maybe go into the, or um, tell me if that is the most common question, but I'm thinking about startup founders. When you don't see the money for quite a long time. So the, the question there I could imagine would be, why would I even set up that and plan if I have no clue when or if the money ever comes to my account? Yeah. Yeah. And I do get that question like, well, I love that idea, Sierra, but there's no money to divide. So what do I do? So in the framework that I've created, the Inventory Genius Framework, we really work on building um, goals around profitability, not top line revenue. I think that's number one key, right? Because you hear, I want to be a seven figure business owner, you know, especially in like the coaching consulting service space. I want to be six figure. I need a sellable offer, all of these terms that we hear. And that's great. Like, I'm glad you want to be a million dollar business, but if we don't keep any of it, it doesn't really matter. So in the framework that I use for my clients and that I've created. We start by looking at the bottom first. And we do this by really following a profit and loss statement or an income statement. So there's five main components. We have our sales, our cost of goods sold, which if your service would be like materials, subcontractors, or inventory, if you're inventory, gross margin is our third category, our expenses, and then our net profits. We have five categories. The first thing I do with a client is to figure out what it really costs to run their business. And if you're just starting out, if you're launching, you can do this. Or if you've been in business 10 years, we can still do this. So what are your true operating expenses? Now, this doesn't include any debt or any inventory. So your fixed, non-fixed payroll, rent, utilities, marketing, so forth and so on. Now we know what it costs to run the business. Now we back up to the top a bit and we look at what our margins could be. So if I sell $1,000 and it costs me you know, $500 to sell that $1,000, is that margin going to be enough to cover my operating expenses and give me a positive number on the bottom? If it's not, I go back to the drawing board and I have three levers I can really pull. I can increase my sales, I can increase my margin, or I can decrease my expenses. And we keep working on pulling those levers until what we've planned creates a positive profit number at the bottom. And that's what we set as our goal. When is the last time you've ever heard anyone brag about profitability? 
They never do. Like if you go on social, it's like, I make all this money. I'm seven feet all top line, which means nothing. Like nothing. I'm actually following a business coach who is talking about that. And that's why I'm following her. And I've applied to be her um, coachee for a while. She's, she has a wait list of several hundred people and doesn't open that many spots uh, yeah. because she has a high retention. And that's the thing. Like she's focusing on talking very transparently about the, the profit, not about the revenue of her business. Yeah. But uh, she's one of very, very few. That's very, that's very few. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's not shiny and fancy and it's a lot of work. So It's a lot more work to create a profitable business than to create a lot of sales. But if Mm. we don't understand what's going on with the numbers, our expenses, our complexity, it will just continue to chase the sales. And that's what happened in my business. That was part of the reason that we weren't, we didn't have a strong enough foundation to fight the battles that we needed to fight. And we ended up losing because I had a lot of top line revenue. Like I was an amazing, shiny business. But I didn't have a solid foundation where I really understood the margins, where I really built profitability, where I really built a strong balance sheet. And so when storms come, if you don't have a strong balance sheet as a business, you're going to run into a lot of issues. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking your framework that you help business owners to, to really figure out their numbers and, and tweak those, can that actually be used very early on when the person or the company are still figuring out the business model for themselves? Absolutely. Yes. And this is why I love it because it focuses or it puts your focus where it needs to be. So let's say Mm -hmm. you have this idea. You've been going over it in the dining room table. You come to me and you say, Sierra, I have the best business idea ever. I'm going to launch next year. Here's what it looks like. We would spell all of those pieces out and we could see, okay, with the idea, the concept that you're creating, what you're going to be charging, how many customers you need, what it costs to run that business. Will this be a profitable concept? If the answer is no, what can we change? Can we change the Mm -hmm. pricing model right away from the beginning? Can we change the conversion rate and what we expect right from the beginning? Can we cut costs from the beginning? So I do work with a lot of businesses. I don't typically work with um, startups, but a lot of businesses will be starting a second business or launching an additional you know, brick and mortar store. And so we use this a lot with them. Um, let's go back to the drawing board. It helps to really focus and simplify the business model itself. Because as entrepreneurs, we tend to complicate things. We have five revenue streams and 45 prices and all of these things. And um, complexity is the enemy of profitability. So we want to get really simple and really focused. Complexity is the enemy of profitability. I want to dive deeper into this because I think, as you said, we we tend to overcomplicate things. And I think in in the beginning, people can justify that, like, okay, but I don't know what exactly will land, what will sell, and so on and so forth. So how do we balance that? Like figuring out, tweaking things that to figure out what actually works because we're building this spaceship while we're flying it, right? Versus overcomplicating things that actually prevent us from getting to success sooner. Yes. Yeah, so I have the perfect example for this. Um, a couple of years ago, I bought my husband what I thought was the absolute best Christmas gift. I'm still, I'm going to be proud of this forever. He is a Notre Dame fan and Billy Joel. And I found a Billy Joel concert at Notre Dame Stadium. I'm like, this is perfect. So that was his Christmas gift. I got us tickets. So the day had finally arrived where we were going to go to the concert. So we we go to the concert, we walk up, we're into the stadium, and we're going to get a drink and something to eat beforehand. And I look around and all I see is beer. And I don't like beer. I love wine. I love cocktails. I'm just not a beer drinker. And so I was really disappointed. Like, oh, I guess I'll have a bottle of water, you know, for this concert. And then I saw a vodka lemonade stand. 
So I was like, perfect. So I went over to the vodka lemonade stand, got in the very, very long line, and it clicked for me. They were selling one thing, one size, one price. And it was so efficient. One person would squeeze the lemon. One person would put it in the glass with the ice. One person would add the sugar. One person would ring it up. It was this assembly line of simplicity. And they were not short of customers. They were not trying to attract beer drinkers. So they weren't sitting at their cart saying, but we have to have bottled soda and we need to have beer and we have to have... No, they said, we sell one thing, one size, one price, vodka lemonade. And there are plenty of people who want just that, that we don't care about all the potential customers will miss. I love to share this story with my entrepreneurs because they'll say, but Sierra, you know, I need to be size inclusive or I have to offer maternity clothes or I need to offer men's or I need to offer, you know, five different price points, a high end price point and a low end offer. And I say, what if you're a vodka lemonade stand and you say, this is what I offer and I do it really, really, really well and really Mm -hmm. efficiently and people know exactly who I am and exactly what I do, would you actually make more? And the answer is always yes. And Mm -hmm. so just showing entrepreneurs that, you know, there is testing and trying, right? Like we, especially in like a boutique or retail, you're going to have different brands and things, but knowing who your avatar is, your customer avatar, and then going hard into what you know they actually want and being okay with not being everything to everyone, that's where you create profit. Does it usually... um... Okay, maybe maybe in brick and mortar it's a bit different because when you when you turn the services, for example, a startup is building some software and there it's usually coming like, okay, we have some free version of the software just to build our potential customer base, and then we have some like premium style, and then we get into the different subscription models, and it's like depending on the size of the company, if it's B2B and so on and so forth. I'm just thinking if we want to simplify all that thinking process of what to focus on, what kind of questions can people ask themselves to make the informed decision about which what becomes their vodka lemonade? Yeah. So I think um, it's so funny because we always complicate things on this side of it. That's why I love being a consultant because I have no emotional attachment to your Mm -hmm. inventory, to your product, to your service, to your people. So I can say from a data standpoint, look at this and cut through the chase. And so in talking to entrepreneurs, they'll ask that question, but I need to have, let's say a 1999 software option and 149 and a free option. So I can't be a vodka lemonade stand, but let's look at not talking about one price, one size. What if we talk about one avatar, right? So who Hmm. is your customer? This would be a question to ask. Who's your customer and what solution are you offering? What problem are you solving? Because we like to talk about what product we're selling instead of what solution we're offering. So for Mm -hmm. me, I'm very, very niche down. I work with inventory-based business owners. If you have inventory, if you sell anything, anything at all, if you exchange things for dollar bills, I can help you. But I don't, while I have information to help, let's say a software company or a dental office, yes, business principles are business principles. And I would give you information if you asked me, but my niche who I market to the product offerings I've created are very specific to, if you have inventory, I can offer you a solution, right? So I think in like um, the case of a a information company, software company, service-based business, what solution are you offering? What problem? And then you go after that avatar, like you really hone in on your avatar. And then that will dictate, yes, we tried this price and that price, but that'll really dictate where you're going instead of trying mm-hmm. to offer like all the help to all the people. So in the end, it could be there are several tiers of offerings just mm-hmm. to 
maybe capture their attention, cut through the competition, and then get them onto the kind of long, we being long-term recurring customers. Yes. I want to go back a bit to resilience because we jumped into the, what you're, you're helping with. and But I think there are so many levels, layers that we can unwrap in the resilience. And actually, I just want to ask you, you usually, or like to me, you uh, presented the resilience together with the Ironman or tri- triathlon. So I yeah. want to ask the connection there. How do you connect the resilience and building it with doing Ironman competitions and then just practicing triathlon in general? Yes. So I have done four full Ironmans. I just went to world championships in Kona, Hawaii, which was phenomenal. And I just, that's a big milestone. I just want to show you because my my husband is a triathlete and I know that I know that it's, yeah, it's not the easy one. And it's also, you just don't go just buy a ticket and go there, right? You need to qualify. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was a work in progress for sure. And the goal wasn't to go to Kona on the first one, the goal was to complete the first one on the first one, right? And so I think like everything we've been talking about, it's about these building blocks. Triathlon or any sport, any athletic sport has so much of a mindset component, just like business does, right? Like when I signed up for my first Ironman, I did three things. I hired or I fired my coach that I had at the time, who was actually very um, not very encouraging, and he wasn't a triathlon coach. So I knew he wasn't a fit, and I needed the right person on my team because I didn't know what I was doing. So I fired him that day. Hired someone the next day. A fee. I wanted a female coach. I wanted someone who had done Ironman before. That was very important. Second thing I did is I bought the right equipment. If I'm going to sit on my bike for hours, if I'm going to be running for hours and hours, I need good shoes. I need a good bike, right? And the third thing I did was commit to the work. I'm not going to hire a coach, sign up for an Ironman, and then skip workouts because they're not fun or because they're not convenient. I am going to commit to all the work. And I think resilience, this is that building block of like, what can we do? So when we get to world championship day and it's a hundred degrees in Kona and super hot and you're with amazing women that are much, much better than you are from all over the world, how do you finish? You've built those building blocks, those mental muscles. And that resilience can kick in because you've done this over and over and over when no one was looking, when you were all by yourself, when you totally didn't feel like it. And so I love to tie my triathlon journey in with business because it's all about that mindset, right? Like what decisions can we make today that are going to give us the result we want five years from now? I'm noting down, putting down the work when no one is watching, because that's usually why this is not sexy. This is not interesting, right? Yeah. Um, it's not shiny. So, and, and we're busy doing it and we don't know whether it actually will yeah. lead to success. So we're maybe not sharing in that much because we don't know how it goes. And people are not paying that much attention to it because it's not sexy and interesting. And then suddenly you are standing in a finish line at a world-class event and people are like, who is this, this this lady? And like, why is she here? And like, oh, she just came out of nowhere. And like, oh, she must be lucky. Or she must be just having this athletic uh, DNA, DNA, right? And her genes and so on. So I just want to emphasize that. I think, first of all, it's important to put in the work and be okay that no one is watching Dan and no one is yeah. interested in us then. Yeah. And with that, I want to ask you a question, Sarah. How do you motivate yourself to keep yeah. putting in the work there? That's really interesting. Um, how do I motivate myself? Well, okay, a couple ways. So in triathlon in, in particular, as an example, I have a very tough coach. She 
is a retired pro triathlete. She has done 60. I don't want to say this wrong. I think it's 68, either 65 or 68 Ironman, full Ironman. Okay. She is a world-class phenomenal woman, but she's hardcore. Like if I don't do my workouts, if I didn't do my workouts continually, I don't think she'd keep me as a client. Like she's not Mm -hmm. messing around. Right. If I skip something, which I think I've only skipped something twice once I was sick and once it didn't work with travel or something like that. So didn't skip because like, oh, I'm bored, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is over years. She wouldn't put up with it. And I know that. And that's why I have her. My daughter's 18. She also qualified for world. So we got to do world championships together. And oh, she has the same coach. Yes. It was just such an amazing day. She has the same coach. And Bella, my daughter and I were talking and the other day we were doing a workout together and I said, I'm kind of scared of Hillary, aren't you? And she said, oh yeah, for sure. But we appreciate her and she's phenomenal celebrator of our wins. Like, So that's important because sometimes we don't have the gumption to motivate ourselves. So who do we have in our corner that can hold us accountable? I work with people who need help with money. So they come to me and they say, I'm in so much debt. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm making so much money. I don't know where it's all at. Right. So they're all interested in financial health, but not everyone is committed to the work that it takes to get there. And that's why they need me because it gets really hard when you have to say, I'm going to have to cut these hours of these people, even though they've worked for me for 10 years. But if I don't cut their hours, I can't make payroll. A lot of times we don't do those hard things if we don't have the right person in our corner saying, I understand it's hard, but we can do this and it will be okay. And that's what I have in my coach. So I think that's one thing because sometimes we just, we frankly can't motivate ourselves. And then I think separate from that, um, in the self-motivation, it's all about like, I just want to improve. Every day I want to improve who I am, what I do, what I'm capable of. And that motivates me because I want to see what tomorrow brings. So I was heading into Ironman Alaska a couple of years ago and I ended up getting injured. Couldn't run for several weeks going into it. In fact, um, the day that I went to registration there in Alaska, I was still wearing a boot. So I went into registration and some of the athletes were like, you're going to run it? Like, what's going on? Um, and my coach at the time, it was a different coach that I had now, but my coach at the time said, why are you still doing it? Why are you doing it? And I said, because I don't know if tomorrow's the day that I'm going to be able to run. And I don't want to give up today when tomorrow might be the day that it's it's fixed, right? And so for me, it's about that, like, I have to do what I can do today because tomorrow's a new day and I don't want to stop a day short. And so if we can have that mindset of like curiosity about where we can go and where we can be, I think that that helps in the motivation, the moments that we need motivation. I love it. I, it this comes to me, um, this image that you've seen on Newton sometimes when the person is digging the tunnel in the search of gold and how they stop. And it's like, they have this super long tunnel, right? And they stop just like 10 centimeters or a couple of inches before they hit that gold mine. Yeah. Uh, And that's what you're talking about, like being curious, but also thinking about like, okay, tomorrow might be that mine. And like, if I stop now, what happens? I never find it. And I I never reap the results of all my work. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And we can get so close. Now that doesn't mean if things are spiraling out of control and going downhill super fast that we just say, well, we're just going to keep going. You know, we're going to be silly about it. That's where we look for professional help. What are you, what am I not seeing that you could see? Right. So what could I do that I'm not thinking of? What, what other tools could I put in my toolbox? So we aren't foolish with our barreling ahead. It's a combination. I think it, it just really is like right people in your corner, right equipment and right philosophy of like moving Mm -hmm. forward, committing ourselves to the work. It's that combination. 
I so also wanted to ask you, people come to you when they have issues with their money in their businesses, right? How does it become, what drives them to actually invest when they, there is already a lack of money somehow, yes, yes. yet they still invest money into working with you to fix it. So how, how is the mindset working there? Yeah. So that's such an interesting question I've had to ask. How do I market myself? Right. Mm. Because I'm, I'm typically asking people, like you said, who already have a cash crunch, haven't been paying themselves, are in a lot of debt. Give me more money so I can help you. And so I struggled, I think, more at the beginning of building this in like how I would position that. Now it's the results. Like they can see the results of my clients. And so it's that I'm going to step out in a little bit of fear, but I can see that this is what she did with someone that was just like me. Here's what happened with someone that had the same circumstances as me. So all of the testimonials I have, they can see that. And I think it's, you get to that point where I'm interested, but I'm so committed to change that I'm willing to invest whatever that looks like to get that change, even though that's really uncomfortable too. Another something just really practical, I tell potential um, clients all the time, in the work that I do, I teach them how to find an ROI on everything. I think it's really easy for us to think ROI on marketing. We hear that all the time, like on our ad spend, what's our ROI? You should have an ROI on your employees. You should have a return on investment and be able to track and measure on everything you do, your space, your location, your pro- everything, including your consultant. So my goal is that they find, save, or make the amount that they're investing in me every month. And it's funny because I'll remind them, I just had a call with one of my clients and I gave him an idea and I said, that right there, that paid for me. That sentence right there paid for me. And he's like, absolutely. Because he would have made a horrible mistake that would have cost him thousands and thousands if he wouldn't have had me um, you know, talking through the scenario with him. So I think it's that mindset. Um, there's a really good podcast episode I listened to, Stacey Bayman, um, a while back. And she talks about how she looks for an ROI whenever she hires a coach. And I, that just really clicked with me. She said, I never go into a program thinking I won't win, thinking I won't get the return on investment because that too is a mindset, right? Like I'm going to go into this. I'm investing. I'm giving Sierra money to help me. I will get a return on this. I will do what she says I'm going to do. I should do. I'm going to follow the process. I'm going to follow the framework and I will get a return on my investment. So a lot of it is them just feeling comfortable that they can follow through on the work. I, I want to then reiterate to how did you manage it in the beginning when you didn't have the testimonials and everything. And the reason I'm asking is because a lot of people who are listening to us right now, they are trying to build a business, right? They don't yeah. have maybe yet have the proof of concept, lots of testimonials to rely on, show the case studies and so on and so forth. So how can they uh, help their potential customers make their choice and get on board with them? Yeah, I think it's about over-serving. So if you're in the service industry, over-service, over-deliver. Like, so when I started my coaching consulting business, I have the philosophy that I will give so much information. So you you find a lot of coaches in that space or consultants that say, like, here's what you need to do to change. Here's half of the formula. If you want the rest, you have to come to me and you have to pay for it. I just didn't have that philosophy. Because I thought I'm going to give people the information to change their lives. Like they're in debt. They have money issues. They have inventory issues. I want to help them. I will give this information. Here's what you need. Here's how you do it. If they want help, they will come and ask me, right? Because most people want it done for them. Most people aren't going to be DIYers anyway, um, to the full extent. So if you're new and you're just starting out, I think over delivering, like 
over-serving your people. Don't hold back and be stingy with your information, with your problem solving. Um, Be really generous in what you offer, right? And then when you do get a client, you serve that client really, really well. And then you ask for testimonial, you know, and I started small, like I had to have my first person that, that hired me. Right. And that's scary for them. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to hire you. But I did a really, really good job for her. I changed, revolutionized the way that she ran her business. And then she invited a friend and then I invited someone else. And so you just build on that. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to ask, again, a practical thing, when people do start getting the, or the businesses do start getting the clients, do you have any suggestion on how to systemize the the testimonials, like asking for that? Because I know from my own experience, I'm bad at that. I definitely have experience or like a, a space for improvement there. And I also know that businesses sometimes forget to do it. They're too busy trying to re- get new customers, uh, do the operations, develop the product further. Maybe they need to find an investment and so on. And that just, you know, and ends up in the bottom of the endless list. So how can we as businesses make it easier to collect those testimonials? Yeah, I would say I'm in the camp with you. I'm not the best at work, but um, what has worked for me, I just love Excel. I do everything Excel or Google Sheets. So if I see something, I'll just screenshot it. At least I have it in my phone then, right? So if someone does a review on Amazon for my book or I'll just screenshot it so I at least have it. And then just throwing it into a Google Drive. I have someone that does help me with social media and some backend kind of VA stuff. Um, and so tasking them, giving, delegating, like I threw a bunch of these testimonials. Can you clean them up? And can you make sure that they get used? I've done projects with my VA before where I've told her, hey, can you back, go back into my free Facebook group and just comb through it and find things and ask people if we can use it? You know, so putting mm-hmm. other people in charge because you and I and those that are listening, we should be doing where our zone of genius, like the t- activities that lie in that, which is probably coaching, helping, problem solving, right? And so hiring someone or finding some help that can do some of those other admin operational things can be really, really good so that they actually get done. Definitely. Yeah. Or using some automations if that is possible. If you're already using some, I don't know, uh, CRM for yeah. checking your your customers, maybe there is some way of sending that email after I don't yeah. know, a month of working together or a month after they purchased your software, your product, whatever it is. So things like that could maybe really help us to, yeah. to systemize that yes. and, uh, and leverage it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Sarah, I would like to just ask you to start wrapping up. What have we not discussed yet that you feel like it's important to mention in this, uh, in both topics? We talked about the resilience, right? And making our choice to not be bitter and actually, you know, rises the phoenix in a way. But then also the uh, the practicalities of building that business, uh, a profitable business instead of a business that focused on sales. So anything that, that you feel like it's important for us to talk about? Yeah, I think just reminding people that wherever you're at, you can start there today and that we're all gifted differently. You know, none of you listening are me. So you're not going to think exactly like me. You're not going to act exactly like me. And the same, I'm not going to be you. And so don't try to become someone else or wish you acted or behaved or succeeded like someone else. Look at the talents you've been given with, given and be a good steward of those. What giftings do you have that you could be a better steward with? What abilities do you have? What zone of genius could you lean into a little bit more? And then what action could you take today? So I just had my clients do this exercise and I think this would be great for your audience. 
write down eight goals, eight things you want to accomplish, big goals that you want to accomplish this year. And this could be business, health, financial, relationship, any, any spectrum. Okay. Write down eight things, make them smart goals. So put a time stamp on them. This needs to be accomplished by this date. Make them actionable. So what are the things I can do today to make this get March closer to this goal? Make them relevant and make them exciting. Um, and so if you're sitting and listening and you're like, oh, geez, you know, I'm too far gone. I don't know. This sounds great, but I can't start with those goals. What do I want out of life in 2024? And what are the things that I can do today with the talents that I have today? And then where am I falling short? And how can I find people or resources to help me? We can all start somewhere. Yeah. And why would you do eight goals? I'm um, so curious I, about the number. Yeah. I think because we have so many areas in life, you know, mm-hmm. so you, maybe it's one in each area of life. Maybe there's a goal in business that's financial, and maybe there's a goal in business that's more size or profitability focused or people or team or leadership focused. So I think we tend to just say, my goal for the year, my word for the year, you know, all like this one. And then if we, we don't make it, we're so discouraged. If we have eight goals and maybe it's six for you, but I told my clients eight, we have different things that are running. And just like I have a goal for triathlon last year, my goal was to make it to worlds. I also had a goal for my business. I also had a goal for my relationships. All of those things are working in the same direction. So while I'm building towards mm-hmm. that financial goal, it's giving me the muscles to do the workouts I need to do so that I can make it to world championships, which is also giving me the ability to communicate better with the people around me, right? So our life is one global like we have one um, holistic, we need to have one holistic view. And so if we just focus on one thing, like my goal is to make $200,000 this year, we tend to lose opportunities in a lot of areas. And I love that part. And I, I, I'm happy that you asked for this clarification because I feel like we do need to be curious and open-minded and uh, getting too specific and too fixed on one or two yeah, just so fixated. things. Yeah. Uh, as you said, we'll lose opportunities. And I, uh, I love how, how you sound like a very curious person, Sierra, and that's what drives you a lot, uh, as it sounds to me. I, I do believe that that can bring us much further in a much holistic and sustainable yeah. way, and we can enjoy the ride much more <laughs> when yeah. we keep ourselves not too locked on to one specific thing. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing everything. and. Uh, being open about your journey and being honest about things that you still need to work on yourself as with these testimonials. I always appreciate that in my guests. And yeah. uh, I, I do want to mention that you, you have a great podcast that is uh, a wonderful resource for, for small business owners and uh, the toolkits that you have on the website. I'll put the link to the website. As usual, you can click on the link and just easily find all the resources and also your book, right? You can uh, reach that the Amazon best-selling book. Um, inventory genius and uh, as we discussed with Sarah before we started recording that that book can be helpful with the business principles even if you don't have inventory in your business so grab a coffee if that sounded interesting and you want to dive into that and uh, that can help you with your goals for 2024 genius leaders so thank thank you for having me it was so good thank you so much and to you genius leaders I want to remind you that I see you I feel you and I love you And I do believe that we can build those businesses that are profitable and not just focusing on sales that lead to nowhere for us and quality of our lives. So go 
learn from Sierra and her resources and uh, maybe work with her and get to those goals for yourself because you're worth it. Take care and talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.